give it up for Brother Tony singing his first lead, I think. Come on, bro. Come on. That was great. I love it. I love hearing men worship Jesus. That's awesome. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 11. We're going to be talking today about what is truth for the first service, and then in between first and second, we're going to do an ordination service for Sister Sydney. She'll be ordained today as a deacon, so please don't be in a hurry. I'm going to make sure there's plenty of time for you to hang out and enjoy uh, uh, that ordination. We're not going to be using the karaoke Bible during this season. I don't know how much longer we'll be doing it, but just get out your Bibles with me. The app has the Bible there. I'm using NIV. John chapter 18, verse 11, taking off from where we left off last week, we see that now Jesus is going to be brought to the prior high priest. So look at verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So Jesus says, I'm willing to suffer for my cause, for what he believes in. He's going to drink his cup. That cup of suffering, as we talked about last week, is what God gave him to do for us. And in life, you and I will suffer. We cannot only expect as Christians to drink the good cup of God's blessings and God's uh, prosperity in our lives. We also will drink the cup of suffering. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. I just want to make sure that you remember that portion of last week's message because drinking the cup of suffering is a part of the Christian life. I don't ever want you to face a hardship in your life where you say, I didn't sign up for this. I feel bamboozled. That shouldn't be your Christian experience. If you ever face a suffering in life, you should be able to say, I'm prepared for this. Can I hear an amen? Come on, you were prepared for suffering. You were prepared for, for trials, for struggle. So Jesus says he's going to drink his cup. Now notice what happens here in the narration. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Caiaphas is the high priest that year, but in years prior, Annas had been the high priest. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. If you remember that earlier when we read in the book of John, he said, hey, when, it was met, when they were messing with Jesus, hey, this may be for our good because if this guy gets arrested and suffers, that may be for the Jewish people's good. He'll be the lamb sent to slaughter. What he didn't realize is that that was a prophetic promise to the Messiah. He was kind of thinking it like if Jesus gets all the heat and Jesus gets arrested, well, then that might work out for us because the Romans will get a pound of flesh and then leave us alone. So while he was speaking what was a prophecy, he did not realize it was a prophecy because by Jesus becoming the scapegoat, by Jesus becoming the one that took the punishment, that wasn't just because they were so slick and Jesus was a doofus and they were taking advantage of him. No, it was actually the plan from the very beginning and it wasn't just so the Jewish people could find freedom from their uh, oppression. It was actually for the entire world to be forgiven of sin. Can I hear an Amen. Amen. I just want you to see that because so many people who even study the Bible, if I was to ask you about Caiaphas's prophecy about Jesus, wouldn't understand it. And so I want you to understand why that's important. Last week, I didn't, didn't get a chance to actually uh, discuss that because I was preaching on the subject of, you know, the cup of suffering. But I wanted you to see that, that the Jewish people, as we've watched them uh, 
get more angry with Jesus. As their hatred has arisen, in their mind, they were justified. It wasn't like they were sinister. It's not like they were Nazis as we would see them, you know, some type of a wicked person, you know, the slave owners of the South, hard-hearted with no good intention. We, we look at the Jewish people in that light. And though there were some that could be just as wicked as anyone that's ever been on this earth, most of them were not like that. Most of them were just simply ignorant, and they didn't know what they were doing. That's why, listen, when Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that's just not something nice he's saying. He's not just saying like, oh, bless their heart, bless their dear. No, no, no. He's saying, Father, you know they don't know what they're doing. Caiaphas did not even know that he had prophesied about the sufferings of the Messiah that was in line with Isaiah 53. He didn't even understand. He didn't know how to tie it together. Now, some like we learned in John chapter 3, Nicodemus and other Jewish leaders, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who we'll hear about in a little bit, they put the pieces together better. But as we're about ready to see, even the followers of Jesus, who were closer to him than anyone else, will fall away. Even as we'll read here, Peter will betray him. So I want us to understand this. The Jews are not all inherently evil, though Jesus does rebuke many of them, call them children of the devil. They are not um, all with ill intentions. They are trying to do their best to figure it out. Now, as time will go on, we will see that they will become more wicked, more evil. Now, what is the warning here? Think about this. What is the warning? Many of us are here today. Like the Jewish people, like the Caiaphas of the past, like the Ananias, the Anasis rather of the past, the father-in-law, we know about Jesus. We hear things about Jesus, but in our culture, people are not serving Jesus. They're ignorant of Jesus, and they may not have real evil intentions towards Jesus. But in their religiosity, going to church on Christmas and Easter and so forth, they're missing the real Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, because your neighbor today that you know, only went to church on Easter. It's not going today. They're not as wicked as they could be. They're not as evil as we, we should not look at them as sinister people. What we should do is look at them with compassion because they are ignorant and they don't know what they're doing. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, you got to get that this morning. The Jewish people as a whole, and this is where anti-Semitism comes from, which, by the way, is just absolutely ridiculous. According to the Christian Bible, Jesus is a Jew. All of his disciples are Jews. The Bible was written by Jews. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, keep up with me here. So for these uh, you know, right-wing extremists or neo-Nazis to supposedly be Christians, an anti-Semite is, is the height of stupidity. But I want you to notice this, that Paul talks about this this in Romans. Let's just turn there quickly so you can see this before we move on. Go to Romans uh, chapter 10, please, and notice Paul's heart towards the Jewish people. Now, remember, it will be later on in Christendom as it becomes more European and less Jewish that anti-Semitism will come forth. The Roman Catholic Church promoted anti-Semitism almost right from the jump. Third, fourth, fifth century, some of their heroes were anti-Semitic. John Christendom was an anti-Semite. This is very truthful to the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And they have tried to repent and make this right, but it followed them even through Nazis Germany and through the time of Mussolini during that time of World War II, which is a different discussion I don't have time to get into. But I want you to understand 
understand this. As Christianity grew from its Jewish roots and became more European, it became more anti-Semitic. But notice Paul, who's in the generation of those who have crucified Jesus, betrayed Jesus, the Jewish people, the Roman people alike. He's in that generation. And notice how he feels about the Jewish people. If there was anyone that could be angry with them and to be unforgiving, it could be him. Because remember, he was also a persecutor as a Jew who was not receiving of Christ. He was a persecutor of the other Jews who were receiving Christ. Jews accepted Christ, Jews rejected Christ. Paul was once the ones that, one of the ones that rejected Christ, and he was persecuting those that accepted Christ, their Messiah, their Mashiach. Now he's accepting the Messiah, and he's speaking about those who continue to reject. Notice his heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be what? Say it again. Save that they may be saved. That's his heart. That's the heart that we are to have. Now, I don't have time to go all into it, but it's a precious heart that he has here for these beautiful people. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Somebody say they don't know no better. They don't know no better since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the accumulation of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now go back to John chapter 18. Understand what's happening here. They arrest him. And they bring him to Annas, who is the father of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Hopefully now you have some understanding of that. Now look at verse 15. Simon Peter, another disciple, was following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Who is this disciple that is known by the high priest? Who could take a guess? John. That's the author of the book of John. Notice this. The book of John is written by an eyewitness. So often now on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, they try to debunk our Bible saying that this Bible was written long after the time of Jesus by hearsay. No, you have written right here the story of John in the narration explaining how Peter got close. Why is this important? Because when you begin to hear the story of Jesus' trial, how would anyone know what's going on if they've all abandoned him? Have you ever thought about that? In the movie, we know what's going on because the author writes about it and we're there in those places where you normally wouldn't be. For example, when I'm watching the movie about, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy, I get to be in the ship with them. But how many know nobody else is in the ship except the Guardians? 
Why do I get to be there? Because the narrator places me there. Well, someone has to have knowledge of that. Of course, that's a fictional story, so the narrator is the author. But here we see this is a factual story, and the narrator, the author, was a character in the story. Not the main character, that's Jesus, but he's there in the story. So how do we know what Pilate says? How do we know what's going on in the court with Herod? How do we know what's going on there with Caiaphas and Annas? We now know John has gotten people in. Can I hear an amen? This is a beautiful testimony to the veracity of the scriptures. Not only that, but did you notice in John's gospel we're told the man's ear who is cut off. Who remembers his name? Look it up. Go back. It's there in chapter 18. It actually says the name of the servant. What is his name? Malchus. Why doesn't any other gospel say that, Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Because they weren't friends with the high priest like John was. See, John was friends with the high priest. John could get to the inner circle. That's why when Peter lopped off that guy's ear, he could put in his gospel, oh, by the way, that was old Malky. Peter got upset, cut off old Malky's ear. Y'all know Malky. Come on, somebody. Isn't that beautiful when you read the scriptures and see how it harmonizes? Don't let anyone try to tell you that the gospels are not authentic. They are authentic. You're reading right now the most verified miracle of human history. And is it any coincidence that the most verified, historically accurate miracle of human history is also the most important? It would only make sense that it would be. If Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is going to be the the height of human history, the most important thing to ever happen on the stage of this earth, don't you think God would take time to verify it in such a way that any rational person seeking the truth would be able to come to the understanding that something happened here? Well, then why would we ever doubt it then when we see all these testimonies? The only reason would be not for a problem up here, but for a problem in here. People who study the scriptures and are not Christians are not so because there has not been provided enough evidence for them. We show you in our narration. There is John. This disciple brought him in. He's friends with the high priest. We then see names brought to account. Why would we hear about names unless they were accurate, especially if you're telling a story at that time? Why would you say that's Malchus when anybody at this time could go now and check and say, hey, you all know who works over here for the Jewish uh, guard? You know any of the soldiers over here that work for the Jewish leaders? Yeah, yeah, I know them. Well, do you know somebody named Malchus? No, no, I never heard of him. Well, go ask. No, we never heard How many know that would be a quick way to blow up the Christian testimony? But how many know if you're saying, oh, there's a guy named Malchus, and you go over here and check and go, oh, yeah, I know Malchus. He's right over here. He'll tell you the story. He'll testify that his ear was cut off and that one healed him. Same thing with, with when we learn about the burial. Whose tomb is it? Oh, it's some tomb over here, just some random tomb and God rose from. No, no, not in the Bible. It's a specific tomb. Joseph's tomb. Well, what Joseph? There's a lot of Josephs around at that time. Joseph of Arimathea, that tomb. That's where they put him. Why would you make up such uh, specific details if it could be easily disproven? But you see, it's because the Bible is based on fact and history. 
that these details are placed in there so that people who are seeking the truth could find the truth. And that's why the Christian faith grew first and foremost in Jerusalem. It wasn't that the Christians go and take this story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and run with it somewhere over to India and say, hey, guys, uh, you, you don't know anything about over here in Jerusalem, but let me tell you a story about a man I know who died and rose from the dead. No, Christianity does spread to places like India, thank God. But where is its first primary growth spurt? It's right in the very place where Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again from the dead, where people could check tombs, check with servants, and check the records. You're reading history. So now Peter is brought in with John into this court to be able to be a part of what's going on. And yet what happens immediately? Verse 12, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked. This is a servant girl in the presence there of these disciples. We had just learned about her as the other disciple. John brought them in. Peter replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So there's Peter's first betrayal. And now continuing on, Annas asked him this question. He's basically trying to get him to confess to blasphemy so that they can crucify him. Now Jesus responds and speaks for himself and says, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Most people believe, looking at the historical account, that this is an illegal trial. Jesus being a Jew, being brought to Jewish leaders in the middle of the night without proper representation and without witness. So he's saying to them, where is your evidence? Why are you doing this? What proof do you have that I have said anything of blasphemy that deserves death? When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Now notice here, we begin to see Jesus being abused, and this abuse will continue all the way to his death on the cross. And yet Jesus is going to turn the other cheek. And this is where we get the understanding of turning the other cheek. This is not turn the other cheek to the guy in the alley that wants to beat you down or rape you, ladies. This is not turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek was in response to those with authority who abuse you be willing to suffer for a just cause. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this as passive resistance. Not being passive to be a doormat, but to resist what is happening through the evil done to you, but not responding in kind. And this was the the way of Jesus. Jesus was not going to respond in kind to him, now strike him down with lightning. Jesus was going to suffer, but he was going to resist the evil while he was suffering. Can I hear an amen? This is how revolutions have started when people were not in charge and did not have the power to overcome through might. They overcome through peaceful resistance. And that's where you get it from here in the Bible, to turn the other cheek. So it's not a matter of what you should do when someone wants to kill you to have self-defense. Jesus says later, or earlier rather, that he will now allow himself to die as a sacrifice. That doesn't mean every time someone wants to kill us, we have to allow them to kill us. Can I hear an amen for self-defense? This turning the other cheek, because sometimes people say, well, what about this? What about this? We believe in just war. Read the Bible. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. King David wasn't just a poet. He was a warrior king. Amen? 
Okay, so the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But what Jesus has taught us earlier is that when you are in this place of oppression and you don't have the ability to rise up against your oppressor, you don't have the ability to have a revolution or a civil war, in those moments resist the evil by standing your ground. And if they strike one cheek, give them the other cheek. That is the proper application here. And so the man slaps Jesus, abuses him, where Jesus has not disrespected anyone. Look at verse 23. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Now notice to his own people, he is saying, why are you striking me? Why are you doing this? If truth were on your side, you would not have to do this. As Christians, we never operate based on mere pragmatism. Pragmatism says that the the means are justified by the end, that you can do whatever you want in the name of the cause that you're in. And this is where we saw when we saw the riots in our city, people who truly saw an injustice towards George Floyd said, well, now that you don't care about us, we don't care about you. We're tearing this whole city down. That is pragmatism and that is not biblical. That is not truth. You do not say, because evil has now been done to me, I now will do evil to you. That's not how we win the worldview war. As Christians, we know better because Jesus Christ sets the example. He is done wrong, but how does he respond in the face of adversity? He reminds me of the young man there in Birmingham as he was standing up against the white oppressors of, of, the, of the Jim Crow laws and fighting for his civil rights. And as this racist police officer belligerent him and put him down, he stood in front of him, stood his ground and spoke the truth and said, I have the right to cross this bridge. You see, there is a truth that doesn't need to be forced. It just needs to be stood upon. And what Christians have done for centuries is stand upon the truth. When Christians stand with a sword to force the truth, it's when we lose every time. When conquistadors wanted to bring Christianity to the shores of America and they did it with a sword, they now have the judgment of God on them. Conquistadors fighting for religion with the sword go to hell just like Muslims and anyone else. But it was the missionaries, notice the difference. It was the missionaries who came and established places like Harvard, Bible colleges for the Native Americans. It was Christians like in the different times of our history that made opportunities for those of different ethnic backgrounds to learn the gospel, to be redeemed, to be uplifted, and to start denominations and fellowships. It was the Christians that were there as missionaries with kind hearts that brought about social change. And it's the same thing that we need today. We need Christian missionaries, not Christian monsters, not Christian conquistadors. Can I hear an amen? We need Christian missionaries who see their role in the culture to change it, but it's from the inside out. It's not with the sword. It's with not the sword of men, but the sword of the word of the Lord. And when I think about how in this culture we need so much change and we, re- and we reject Jesus' example and look more to the example of the right and to the left, now you can see why we have so many problems. When was the last some time somebody said, I'm trained in this, instead of saying I'm a trained Marxist, as the leaders of BLM said? Or as Alex Jones said, I'm a conspiracist of this, a conspiracist of this. When was the last time you saw these men take the word of God? 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus is showing us that through the cup of suffering, there can be change. But the one that brings the change has to be righteous. You have to have a cause that is worth fighting for, and you have to fight for that cause in righteousness. I just watched the documentary uh, film by Eva Longoria on Disney, uh, Smoking Hots or whatever. It's about the Cheetos. Who knows what I'm talking about? Flaming Hots. Thank you. And my heart broke as this Latino man suffered. And I thought of all of the people in our church that are Latino and what maybe your ancestors have gone through. I cried. I wept with this man as he faced the oppression of those around him, as he didn't get the opportunity to succeed. It's quite a decent movie. I can't recommend those things as a pastor, but I would just say it was a blessing to me. And if you watch it, we'll have something to talk about next time we're eating hot Cheetos. But something that stuck out in my heart is that in this story, no spoilers here, but something in that story that stuck out in my heart is that his father, who was once an abusive alcoholic, became a Christian. And it was from that Christian testimony that began to infect his wife and eventually him. And it was a prayer that he prayed over those hot Cheetos that he believes gave him the success of what you will now know as the hot Cheetos and all of those other flavors that came from there. But I think about something as so trivial as that. If God is in the midst of it, if God can redeem it, if God can use it, this janitor who was working at Frito-Lay that simply had a cause to want a diet, to want a food to represent his people, if he was willing to fight for such a cause, even in the midst of oppression, my brother, my sister, will you fight for such a cause for those today that are oppressed? Will you fight today for those who are underrepresented? Will you have something in life that is worth dying for? In other words, will you be a sacrifice Sacrifice for the gospel and the kingdom of God. Jesus is our example. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, he's talking about social change. He's talking about social justice. He's talking about equity. He's talking about fairness. And our world is begging for it today. And yet we have trouble to find where to look. Well, should we look to Che Guevara and how he oppressed the Cubans and those of Central and South America when they implemented communism? Should we look over here to Marx and Marxism? Should we look over here to this political leader, to this adulterer, to this nincompoop? No, we look to Jesus. Jesus is the example of justice. Jesus is the example of change. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. Brothers and sisters, live like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Sometimes they say to me, Pastor, that's easy for you to tell us people of color to be like Jesus. You got all that white privilege. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. If I could lose all of my white privilege to suffer with you, I would. But what good then would that do just for me to try to in some way patronize you or to pretend to be like you? My brothers and sisters, I didn't choose to be born at this time into this culture, into this way, but I will use every bit of influence that I have to fight alongside of those who are searching for justice and those who want to have the best life that God has for them. In other words, I may not be a single mom and I'm not going to become a transvestite mom so I can relate to you, but I will stand up and fight for the causes of single moms. 
Are you listening? I may not be a deadbeat dad or a dad that grew up in a home where never had a dad or was abused, and now I'm needing to make money through the streets. I, I can't do all of that. I can't go become a criminal today to relate to the criminal. But I will stand, hallelujah, on Madison and Pulaski and preach the gospel and give the best message that I have from this. And even those who are here today and say, yeah, I know what it's like to suffer. I'm a single mom. I'm a dad. That struggle because I never had a dad. Yeah, but you can't relate to the next person's struggle. Can you understand the Asian struggle if you're not Asian? Can you understand the woman's struggle if you're a man? Come on, somebody. A woman, can you, a man, can you understand the woman? Woman, can you understand? See, all of us go have limitations. All of us in, in some way or another are going to have privileges and, and, and ways of, of looking at things and giftings that are better in some ways than others. Some are tall and we can reach things. Some are short so they can reach things down there so we have to break our back every time. Some are fast. They're the ones that get away first. Some are slow. we got to stand and fight. You know, I can't run as fast as you, so if the sun goes down, I'm going to have to stand and fight. Amen. You know, we all got our gifting. Some have a sense of humor. Some are smart. Some are smart and have a sense of humor. You know, you, you, can, you can look at all of our lives. We all are privileged in some way. We're all in some way disabilitated in another way. We need each other. I am my brother's keeper. And I look to Jesus and I see him standing in the face of injustice. And he does it so different. I want to be like Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus. I want our politicians to be like Jesus. I want our judges to be like Jesus. I want our police officers to be like Jesus. I was, uh, you know, sometimes I get these uh, feeds that come up and I can see both sides, you know, uh, in this one, in one situation, this police officer, he's pulling over a, a person of color and it's because they have now on these police cars, these tracking devices, man, they've gone to another level, y'all. They got a tracking device, like 360 cameras that are always scanning your plates. So be careful, make sure you register and pay all your bills because some of these things got scanners all around them. And this man had a U-Haul that was stolen and the police officer on tape. Hey, kindly, gently, may I talk to you? I need to get information about this. Maybe he borrowed it. We don't know the details. But something went wrong instantly with this man that he tried to grab the police officer's gun. He must have done something wrong or felt guilty because he tried to grab the police officer's gun. And then the next moment, I see him getting gunned down. What a heartbreak. You see, I see that, and I go, okay. I feel for that police officer, man. That guy wants to go home tonight. He wants to be with his family tonight. All he's doing is just saying, you got a stolen car. What, why are you trying to grab his gun? And then I've seen the other ones, like George Floyd, where you say to the police officer, man, just get off him. Why are you still on top of him? You've already detained him. He's saying he can't breathe. Even if they shuck and jive like that, still, man, just let the dude breathe. And so I see both sides. How many sometimes you can see both sides? You can see the cop's side, and you can see the other person's side. How many know what I'm talking about? How many know sometimes you can see the Democrat side, and then you can see the Republican side? How many know sometimes you can see different people's sides? But how do we know to make the right decision? How do we know to stand and now say, this is where I'm going to plant my flag. This is where I'm going to put my feet. Brothers and sisters, you never have to worry about being right or wrong if you do it on the Word of God. You don't, you don't have to always just question yourself. If it's the word of God, you're right. Well, what if the Republicans don't like me? It doesn't matter. I would rather be wrong with the Republicans and right with God than to be right with the Republicans and wrong with God. You just, you just think this is simple, brothers and sisters. You stand, you stand on that word. And where, where is Jesus standing right here in his oppression? Where is Jesus standing in his time of trial? He's standing on truth. 
He's standing on truth. Somebody say truth. Come on, look at it again right there. John chapter 18, verse 21. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely you know what I have said. See, his words have been spoken. Now verse 23, if I said something wrong, testify to it. Tell me I've done wrong. But if I spoke to the truth, why do you strike me? Brothers and sisters, we will get struck for the truth. I wish I could preach this message everywhere today that is striving for justice. I wish that everybody today could hear the application of Jesus. But you know what? I'm not there. But you know what I can do? I can preach it here. And you know what you can do? You can preach it where you're at. Maybe you're on your job. You see a certain group of people being oppressed. You stand for truth. Maybe you're at your school. You see kids getting bullied. You stand for truth. Maybe you're on your block and you see people mistreated. You stand for truth. I know it may not sound like Salma, you know, and the bridge to freedom, you know, back in the civil rights day, but I've stood for truth when it's my turn to stand. I remember taking kids from the inner city of New Orleans to Mississippi to go to a camp, and we had to stop and get lunch. And let me just tell you, Mississippi in the 90s was not the friendliest place to African Americans. And when I walked in there with a bus full of African-American kids to an all-white CC's pizza, people looked at us and mistreated us by the way they served us. And I spoke up for them, and I said, treat us like you would anyone else. We need to be treated and served the same. Now you say, well, that's nothing, Pastor, but that was my time to stand up. Another time I was just fishing by the Dundee or rather Algonquin Dam, and I was handing out my book to a gentleman that had seemed to be quite normal up until this time. But at, at, at this time, I had a book of a white Jesus handing a black man a, a word or a Bible, a scripture of some kind. Now, I don't portray Jesus like white anymore, but that was just what I did back in the day. <laughs> okay, you all forgive me for that? He wasn't white. He was black. What is he? He's Latino. No, I'm kidding. But he's closer to Latino. Right, he's middle brown, right? So that's what we think of the Middle East there. So I hand him this book, and you know what he says? Oh, these blanks, they do need Jesus. This white man said a racist term about the black man receiving the Bible from Jesus. I said, You need to repent of racism because you'll go to hell. See, that's me standing up. Somebody say, Stand up. And then in my neighborhood, there is a large Southeast Asian community there, and they are just the best kind of neighbors you could ever want. I got to know one a little bit better the other day. He said, when this neighborhood was built, nine of our families bought houses here. You have to understand how some, some cultures stick together. Don't be jealous of it. Do the same thing. Amen. You need to learn how to uplift your culture. These cultures stick together, man. They bought nine houses in this suburban Elgin neighborhood. Well, they like to walk in groups, and so sidewalks are not accommodating to large groups. So oftentimes, you'll see people running through my hood, 8, 10 deep, all Southeast Asian. You'll see them running deep, walking in the street, all of them, you know, but they're wrapped up, they're doing their thing, and that's just, that's them, man. They own houses. They own almost my whole block. But there was this uh, Caucasian family there with a dog that kept, you know, uh, a whooping and hollering, just, you know, barking at them, barking at them. And then the owner got mad at them and said, why are you guys walking in the street? My dog don't like that. And I said, the problem's with your dog, not with them. They can walk in the street if they want to. But this man thought he had the right to tell people where to walk because his dog was a, a schizophrenic, crazy dog. No, your dog's crazy, but you see that caring mindset in the mind made him think that he could say something like that. But I stood up for truth. Somebody say, stand up for truth. And I wish you would stand up for me because oftentimes they tell me, white boy, get out this neighborhood. 
How many know people of color can be racist towards me as well? Oh, y'all get quiet now? <laughs> I know it's not the same. I'm not asking for your pity. I'm just saying every now and then. Stayed right here on this corner preaching to a Puerto Rican woman. How do I know she was Puerto Rican? Because she told me about five times. This is our neighborhood. You don't belong here, white boy. You need to go somewhere else. That's what she kept telling me. You see, you got to stand for truth. I love how they have underground, uh, you know, hidden cameras now in these different things that get to show people's real reaction, and you get to see heroes. You know, there's one, a white kid getting his hair cut at a black barber shop, and they keep messing with them, messing with them, and then there's a mama there that stands, uh, an African-American mom that stands up for them. That's, that's what I love to see. And the same thing, they were picking on a black kid, and a white mom stands up and said, Don't, you know, I love these hidden camera shows, but sometimes they show that people don't do anything. It shows you that after all of this, after all this understanding that we're supposed to have one race, the human race, all of this justice talk and all this, that people still just do what they do, look for their own way out, look for their own convenience. If it doesn't benefit them, they're not getting involved. As oftentimes as is brought up in these videos that are taken is how come the person's taking the video and not doing something for the one being hurt? We're not called to be bystanders in this culture. We're called to be like Jesus and stand in, in truth. Well, what if they slap me, Pastor? Well, if it's time to turn the other cheek, do so. If you can defend yourself, defend yourself. But here's what I know for a fact. You speak the truth and you'll never be ashamed of your behavior. You'll go home at night and you'll sleep good knowing that you stood for the truth. I'm standing for the truth in this generation. And now to move it past the racial issues that are prevalent in our culture or the justice with the police and what's happening, just to tap on what's going on in the LGBTQ community. They think that they're not being treated fairly. They think that they're not being honored. And I think, brothers and sisters, we need to continually remind them. We affirm their humanity. You are a human. You are worthy of respect and dignity. You are worthy of the same opportunities for life and prosperity that I have. And we should let them know that. At the same time, we should be able to say, I don't agree with your lifestyle. I don't want drag queen story hour in our library. But how many know we can do that while still loving them? If we get to the point that all we can say to the drag queen is that I hate you, I mean I love you in Jesus' name and you're going to hell, <laughs> it's the Christian way of saying I hate you, if you know what I was trying to do there. We don't just want to say I hate you. What we'll say is I love you but you're still going to hell. And that's all they hear from us and we have failed them. I'm reminded of, of, of uh, Brother Cook who talks, he has a podcast, he's from the homosexual lifestyle, uh, I think his name is Garrett Cook, he talks about how when he was preached to as a homosexual with his boyfriend in the Starbucks by Christians, they told him the truth about his lifestyle, but he knew that they loved him. He knew that they cared about him. He knew that what they were offering him was something that they believed would benefit him. Sometimes I look at my Christian brothers and sisters as they go street preaching, even now during uh, Pride Month, is I wonder if they would be ashamed if that person that they were hooting and hollering at on the streets came to the church this Sunday to sit down next to them like how you are here. If they would be ashamed of their behavior in front of their children now that that person would sit there with them. Brothers and sisters, I don't ever want to preach to anybody on the street that I would be ashamed of to bring around my children and take them into my home. Are you listening? In other words, that I was so belligerent, I was so angry, I was so uncontrollable in what I was saying that now to see me in this place of peace, now to see me in a place of love for my family, they would say, hey, well, you didn't treat me like that. <laughs> 
you're a hypocrite. You came out here and just yelled and hollered at me. Now you come into your church, you, you give your kisses, your hugs, your high fives, your daps. That sounds like a hypocrite. Because di- and they would be right to say so because didn't Jesus say, don't be like the world, they greet their own. Don't be like them. They look out for their own. Be like your heavenly Father who sends rain to the just and to the unjust. Don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. When you have meals at your house, don't just bring over your friends and neighbors so they can repay you. Ah, well, now I'm going to have you over. Thanks for bringing me over. I'm going to bring you over to my house. No, don't just bring those who can repay you. Bring those who have nothing left to give you or nothing to give you in exchange. Can I hear an Amen. I look at the story of Jesus and I see how he changes our world if we would just take him at his word. If we would stop putting our hopes in storming the Capitol, burning down our cities, screaming at the top of our lungs trying to make a point, and if we would actually love people the way we've been loved by Jesus, our words will mean something. And when we preach and when we're bold and when we raise up our voice like a trumpet, it will come with the anointing of the Holy Spirit because it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. I do not want us to depend upon the, the, the bravado of this world to think that's what's going to win them. No, what's going to win them is the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll have the boldness, we'll have the truth. And if anybody thinks I'm weak, you have never preached with me. I am not weak. But what I'm saying is I will not lose the humility of Christ for the sake of trying to be right to a culture that is wanting to pick a fight with me. They were wanting to pick a fight with Jesus, and yet Jesus stood on the truth. He willingly took his cup of suffering, and he said, if that's what it takes to display the love of God, that's what I'll do for you. And yet at the same time, intermingled, as John does so well as a narrator, intermingled into this is Peter's betrayal. So while we are getting a lesson about standing for righteousness and justice and doing something in the face of our oppressors that should bring conviction, we have Peter ducking and dodging. And what does that make me feel like today as a pastor? Looking at the empty seats, looking at the empty churches, looking at the empty minds of Christians today, they're betraying Jesus. They're running for the things of the world. They're acting like they don't know Jesus. They're acting like they don't have anything to stand up for. This was Peter's time, not the cutting off of an ear, but this was Peter's time to be brave. I remember during uh, the time when they uh, were wanting to shut us down and weren't happy with us meeting, you know, and uh, there was like these guys that was, were big and tough on, you know, Facebook and different things like, man, I stand for America, you know, I'm, I stand for the rights of this, this, and that. And when I asked them to come out here and stand in front of the church, they were chickens and cowards. So on Facebook, they would be a keyboard warrior, but they wouldn't stand in front of the church and to pray and to greet people and to make sure that we were safe. You see, because that was the test of their courage, and they didn't have it. You see, the test of your courage is not what you say, it's what you do. Peter had said, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. But when it came time to just stand next to Jesus and to boldly say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, that's my dude, he backs down. And I feel we've got too much hot air in the church. We've got too much hot air in this culture. Too little being done and too much being said. 
It's about time that Christians live as we believe. If we believe in pro-life, then we adopt and we open up our homes. If we believe that black lives matter, we go into black communities. If we believe that Latino lives matter, we go into Latino communities and give everything that we can. If we believe that there are really people going to hell from the suburbs to the inner city to the downtown penthouses, then we will preach the gospel to everyone the same, showing no favoritism. Amen? Because we believe it's worth doing. It's worth doing. It's worth preaching to skateboarders, drug dealers, homosexuals, businessmen and women. It's worth preaching to politicians and to children. But here's Peter. He doesn't want to preach. He wants to cover his own skin. He wants to make sure he still has people coming to the conference next week. Because he got Bishop so-and-so coming and he got $150 a ticket. But if you pre-register, it was $99. So he, he don't want to offend you. He don't want to offend you. He, he want to make sure that he stays cool with everybody. He don't want to rock the boat. He wants to be invited to the Dove Awards. He wants K-Love to keep playing his little five-minute self-help message every day. You see, there are too many Peters in the church. We know what happens to him eventually. He gets restored and he becomes the great preacher at Pentecost. But don't forget what happens here because all of us are one betrayal, one compromise away from being like Peter. Well, well, Barbara, we, we want to talk to you. Okay, what do you want to talk about? Well, we heard that you believe homosexuality is a sin and we think that's kind of strange because your cousin's a, a lesbian. Are you saying your cousin's a lesbian? Oh, but, but, but I, 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 I don't really know. I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I just kind of read the Bible. I keep it to myself. Okay, well, we were just making sure. See, that's how the world will pressure you. And listen, I want them to ask me those questions because I don't care if it's my cousin. I don't care if it's my uncle. I don't care if my dad comes out and says he's really a nine-year-old girl trapped in that 70-year-old body. Listen, it's all sin. That's as simple as that. I'm not trying to play favorites, nor am I trying to play nice. I love you, but I'm here to tell you it's sin. I'm not betraying Jesus. Well, what if we live together? You know, heterosexual now. Well, what if we live together and we say we love each other and we have children together and we've been, you know, so good to the community and we come to church. Listen, it's fornication. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, no fornicator shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, your dad, when mom were like that, well, this person, it doesn't matter who was like that. I always bring up this example when they bring up their culture. What's my culture? Well, it's this, this, and that. And I say, my Italian grandfather slaughtered his own meat and ate raw meat in front of me. Should I keep doing that because that's my culture? Yes or no? Some of you are like, yeah, it's good. Eat it raw. If you've had raw meat, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There's a little taste to it. El tartar. El tartar, I've ever say that. You know? But yeah, yeah, you know what? I'm not doing that. I don't care if my grandpa did. That's my grandpa. I'm not my grandpa. My grandpa also had nudie magazines in the barn. Is that my culture too? Nudie magazines in the barn? Because I remember when that Super Bowl halftime show came out and we were like, Shakira and J-Lo need to repent for shaking their half-naked booty all over the place. And we had Latinos and Latinas say, well, that's my culture. That's my culture. Listen to me, my Latino brother and sister. J-Lo and Shakira are no more your culture than Britney Spears and Miley Cyrus are my culture. We are the culture of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the culture of the men and women of the Bible. It's Christ's culture. Not what Elvis Presley did. Not what Miley Cyrus does. She ain't my culture. This is my culture. Amen. Christ's culture. 
And yet we see Peter just going right along with his culture. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself, chapter 18, verse 25 of John. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Those of you who are hip to the Bible, matching all four Gospels together like surround sound, you'll notice that there's different people at different times making up the three betrayals here. I have links in my notes that help you harmonize this. It's really simple. It's either more than three, because if you have more than three, how many know you still have three? So when Jesus is talking about three, he's talking about a specific number, and he's using that number three to be like the number of perfection. You will perfectly deny me, and we know he'll be restored three times. So some say, he betrayed him up to six times, and each one of the gospel writers are taking some of the betrayals and counting it together as three. Like I said, if you have six, you at least have three. Others say, well, it's three times, and it shouldn't be looked at at six, but if anybody's been around crowds, there's different people who talk all at the same time. And this made me laugh yesterday because I was uh, leaving the outreach, and these two brothers wanted to say something at the same time to me, and they you know, blurted it out, blah, 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 blah. And I go, uh, what did you guys say? And instead of one saying, hey, you go first, they blurted it out again at the same time, blah, 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 blah. And I said, listen, y'all, I'm getting old. I can't hear stuff like that one at a time. <laughs> and then the one brother said, I'll see you because I'm going to work. I'm like, great, thank you for saying that. The other one said, I hope you don't have traffic. Great, I got both of your messages. I'm leaving now. Anybody have trouble like that or is that just me getting older over here? Okay, I'm the only one. Well, just pray for me. I'm a special kind of person, amen. But you see, that could have been what happened. Well, 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 in Luke's gospel, it says at this time it was a girl and John's gospel says it was a guy. They could have been all talking at the same time. You understand how crowds are? You ever been in a crowd? Especially, have you been in a crowd when we're preaching? Voices coming every, everywhere. Oh, you all say this, you say this. I've had objections coming from three and four directions at the same time. And sometimes they're the same objection, but they're just coming from different voices. So it's either six, ten, however many betrayals happening there. Some people put it as high as six, and each gospel writer is, is making it to be three, because if you have six, you have three. Or it's just people in the crowd speaking at the same time, and one is remembering it was this one who said it too, and then the other one says, well, that one said it, and so there's no contradiction, because the bottom line is Peter denied Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that truth? If they try to contradict it, how may still say amen to it? Even the bad parts, it's still the truth. Peter denied Jesus. Let's keep going. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Okay? But now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now notice this. These people are lying on Jesus, about ready to get him killed, and they're worried about whether or not they're clean during Passover. See, that's what religion will have you do. Religion will have you act a certain way thinking you're right while you're doing the greater evil really being wrong. So brothers or sisters, don't say to yourself, well, you know what? I came to church, so it's okay if I looked at pornography. Or I did this, and that's okay if I did it. No, no, no. They were unclean, not just because of a ceremonial thing on Passover. How about the uncleanness of lying on the Messiah? How many know that's the most unclean thing you possibly could have done? But notice this as well. When you look at Proverbs and the woman in adultery, she's a religious woman. Many, many people can be religious and sinful at the same time. Don't be one of them. 
Do not be a religious sinner. Do not be someone who hides your sin in religion. And how many know sometimes that's the most disgusting type of sin there is? When you hear about pastors doing this and priests doing that or religious people doing this, as I mentioned, the conquistadors, the slave owners, supposedly supposed to be having the Bible and so forth, that is oftentimes the most vile kind of sin is when people hide it in their religiosity. So brothers and sisters, today, serve Jesus in holiness because the religious code that these people were under was not merely for external cleansing, it was for internal cleansing. That's why he said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside is a bunch of dead men bones. Now look at verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate replied, Well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Do you remember that Jesus said he would die at the hand of Gentiles? Go quickly with me to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Once again, notice the harmony of the gospel. John is saying, he said this. Notice in the narration. John is saying, he said this knowing that it would fulfill the prophecy. Well, where is that prophecy at? Is it in the book of John? Yes or no? That he'll die at the hand of Gentiles. No, where is it at? It's in Matthew. Where are you turning right now? Okay, guess where it's at then? Guess what book we're going verse by verse through? John, so it's not in John, is it? It's in where? Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Oh, wow, he, he prophesied that. And the teachers of the law. Wow, that's come to pass. They will condemn him to death. That's come to pass there in John. And guess what else will happen? And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will what? Be raised to life. Isn't that a wonderful harmony there, my brother, of the Scriptures? Going back now to John. This is to fulfill what is going to happen, what he prophesied, the kind of death he would have. So that means John, even though he doesn't write the prophecy, must assume you would know it. So John, this is why we believe was written later than Matthew, at least, if not the others. Because if John is speaking of a prophecy in his gospel... That has already been written down to his audience here. He must be after them. How many know he must be after them? Amen. Because otherwise they would be looking around going, uh, excuse me, John, we just heard you say there's a prophecy. We, we don't know what you're talking about. Uh, what, 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 you know, they didn't have chapters then, but you get my point. What, what chapter here is that prophecy? That's where you know the harmony of the Gospels. John doesn't have to say everything. Mark doesn't have to say everything. They complement each other. They don't contradict each other. Now look at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now once again, if you've never had an atheist ask you this, and you weren't prepared, praise God, but I've seen Christians get rocked by this. How does the narrator know what's going on in Pilate's palace? Isn't that a good question? How would he know? Well, there's a great answer to that. John has an inner circle relationship with these guys. More than likely, John has followed Jesus there, and he's still there. 
Likewise, after Jesus' resurrection, he's with them for 40 days. He more than likely told him, guys, this is what happened when you weren't around. But isn't that beautiful that we see the Bible giving us the true narration? This is not fiction. This is not on the same level of Spider-Man. This is what is going to be the most verified miracle of human history. Even atheists themselves, as they have tried to disprove the resurrection, have become Christians. One like Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, who worked for the Chicago Tribune as an investigative reporter, when his wife became a Christian, was very upset that she changed her views. He went to her church, said to that pastor, give me a week and I'll disprove that religion. A few years later of investigation, he became a Christian and wrote the book, The Case for Christ. That's what you're reading today. So let us not just go through the Sunday story, uh, the Sunday school version of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Let us put some meat on the bone. So he's there. He's with Pilate. Pilate can make the decision of his fate. And he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did you talk to others about me? Or did others talk to you, rather, about me? Peter, uh, Pilate replied, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Somebody say another place. Amen. Here we see that Jesus will not fight with the weapons of this world. He will fight according to the word of God. But is he a king? Is he a king? Does he have a sword? Yes. Is that kingdom coming with a sword? Yeah, it happens in the end of the book. But is it coming at that time? No, because before he comes as a conquering king, he must suffer as a sacrifice. Where they had missed it is where we get redemption. Thank God for Jesus. He says to them, my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, you are a king then, uh, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And every wife can look at their husband and say amen to that. Every husband should know now that his wife is on the side of truth, and she, uh, he needs to listen to her. Can I hear an amen from some wives here today? You better listen to me. <laughs> listen, you better listen to your wives, husbands. But listen, that's what Jesus said. You better listen to me. You better have the truth on your side. And before I get to Pilate's retort, I want you to understand the greatness of what Jesus had just said here. Jesus now gave them the opportunity to kill him. Because notice this, Jesus has been keeping this a secret. So now if he says he's not a king, they will have to let him off. But he is a king and he's come to die for their sins. But it's not a revolution. So how does Jesus get the devil through Pilate to fall for his trap? He has to say he's a king, but of another realm. So then you get enough from the Romans... He said he's a king. Look, we heard him say that. And then the other realm, the Jews go, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He made two enemies enabled to give him the death penalty in that statement. Do you understand the wisdom of God? Because if he would have just simply said he's any old king, the Jews would have no blasphemy charge. 
The Jews understood that if you were the king of that realm, that's Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes and is handed all worship and authority, that's the understanding they got from that. Okay, so now Jews can rightfully kill him. And then once again, if he is just merely coming from another realm, the, the uh, Romans don't care. You believe you're from another planet? That's okay. We have Hercules, half God, half men that we worship around here. No, but he has to say he's a king. To them, now you can't say you're a king. You can say you're make-believing this, and you can say you're make-believing that, but the moment you take the title of a king, we now care about that because there's no king here except Caesar. Does everybody get that? So he now makes the Romans mad. You called yourself a king. You can't do that. Jews didn't care if he was a king of whatever, but once you're the king of that realm, now you die. Both Jew and Gentile now say we've got death penalty, but look at what... Pilate responds as Daryl comes to the keyboard, please. He says, you are a king then? Pilate said, yes. You say, or Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Pilate responds, what is truth? With this, he went on again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time, uh, at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the supposed king of the Jews? They shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And then you see that Pilate wrestles, as we'll get into the next few verses. He wrestles with this because he's like, he's really only your king, and I really can't let him die just for that. But then eventually they will say, you know, in verse, uh, chapter 19 of verse 12, that you know if any, if any man says he's a king, he is of no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're going to eventually hang him on those words. We're going to dismiss in just a moment the first service with prayer and a time of reflection on the word and then we're going to have a ordination for our our amazing precious sister Sydney so please hang out amen but I want to make sure before we go and if some have to go and you don't love Sydney that's okay no I'm kidding you better stay half kid um, but, it, but if you have to go we'll let you go we're not going to keep you here but I will say this. We need to get this. Pilate asked, what is truth? When you hear somebody say something like that, they don't want to know the answer. When people talk like that, it's because they don't want to know the truth. And people in our generation, as we were talking before, are saying all the time, well, really, what is truth then? What is truth? Really, what is a you know, what does it mean to be a human? What, what is our purpose? I know there's genuine ways of asking that, but when they ask it like the way Pilate did, they're really just saying, well, just tell me your answer, and then I'll tell you mine, and then we'll just move on from here because nobody really has a answer that can answer the question for everybody. Most people think that their purpose is determined by their own desire. Most people think that they are the ruler of their own life and that they then dictate what's going to happen. But brothers and sisters, as we'll soon see, Pilate wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for God. Pilate thinks he's in charge. But what does Jesus say? Really, my father's in charge. He's letting this happen. So often we think we're in charge, but we're not. We're not in charge of anything. Think about your heart beating right now. You're not in charge of that. That could stop right now. 
Think about the earth and how it's spinning. You're not in charge of that. It could stop right now. The sun could stop shining. So we live in this world of uncertainty, and then when we get a little bit of power, we get a little bit of control, like Pilate, we think we're in control. We think we're the one judging God. Well, God, I don't agree with this, and God, I don't agree with that. We become like Pilate and put Jesus on the stand. Well, Jesus, why did you let my mom die? Why did you let this child get abused? Why did you let this happen? And Jesus can respond back to us very similar to what happened here. I stand for truth. It is true that these things happen, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I bring peace through these things. I bring joy. And we can say back to him, well, what is truth? What is life? What is peace? Because when people ask me all the time, why does evil happen? Here's the truth. Because mankind has sinned. Well, what does that mean, sin? What does that mean? Why do we die? Because we've sinned. Well, what is life really? Well, why do we have to keep these commands of sexual, you know, purity? You know, uh, because God said, well, what is purity then? Seriously, I have people say this nonsense to me. all, And I was a sinner and I talked like that too. We think like we're uh, smarter than God. And yet, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords. And brothers or sisters, what is our job? What was Pilate's job to do? Submit to Him, bow down, and kiss His feet. But He doesn't, and God's going to use that for His good. Because Jesus is crucified, we now have a Savior. We now have our sins forgiven. And so can we see good come out of evil? Yeah, look at the cross. Has there ever been anybody more innocent than Jesus? No. And has there ever been anybody done more wrong than Jesus? No. So if Jesus can see good come out of the cross by the love of the Father that he had for him and the power of the Holy Spirit, don't you think God is able to bring good out of whatever evil we're going through today? That whatever the enemy means for evil in our lives, God can turn to good? That through whatever death and suffering we will face, there is a resurrection on the other side? That though weeping may endure for the night, joy comes in the morning? Is there anybody here that's willing to trust Jesus as Jesus trusted the Father. I trust Jesus like Jesus trusted the Father. I don't want to have a debate with them. I don't want to put them on the stand and act like I'm in charge. I just want to trust Him. I found myself at a funeral this year, and I've talked about it because it was meaningful to me. I found myself at a funeral this year for my brother who's younger than me. It wasn't time to put Jesus on trial. It was time to trust him. That good is going to come out of this. I've been betrayed, not as severely as Peter betrayed Jesus. That's the creation, betraying the creator. But I've been betrayed by people this year. Lied about and cheated on. Two-timed. Talked bad about. Called everything but a good man. Can I get a witness in here? They went to Facebook instead of his book to find the solution. But I'm not putting Jesus on trial. How dare you do Jesus? Uh, Jesus, how dare you let this happen to me? No, I'm trusting Jesus in the middle of the trial. 
What are you going to do when you're on trial, when your life goes against you, when you think that everybody's on your side? And, they, and, and you can almost just see it too, man. You can see, I don't, I don't watch The Chosen uh, because it messes with me too much. Uh, depictions of Jesus mess with me. My imagination's better than a movie. But those who like those things, that's up to you. But I can just see this right here. Jesus is being betrayed. Jesus is being slapped in through the doorway or through the hallway. He sees his best friend betraying him. I think that hurt more than the slap. And brothers or sisters, we may feel like that so often, like we're in our trial, we're, we're in our time of testing, and we're just saying, man, come on, don't turn on me now, wife, don't turn on me now, husband, don't turn on me now, kids, don't turn on me now, job, don't turn on me now, government. And in the middle of that, we see the people we're counting on turn right on us. And at that moment, you're going to have a choice. What are you going to do? You won't get mad at Jesus. You're going to blame Jesus. You're going to put Jesus on trial. You're going to make an argument with him that you go, oh, what's truth? What's life? What's the meaning? Why should I even go to church? What's a pastor's job anyway? What is, what's the reason? You know, you're going to do that? Or are you going to forgive them and put your eyes on the thing that matters most? Jesus told us how he was going to face the cross. You know how he faced the cross? With his father. That's how he was able to go to the cross. Now because he went to the cross, we can face our trials because we have him. I'm going to pray now. I pray you apply this to your life as I do. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. I pray as we go through our trials as Jesus did, we do what he did. We trust you. We look to his example. Father, I pray you'll look at our hearts and see if we've been the betrayer, if we've broken our marriage vows, if we've lied against our parents or our friends or family and done things against our culture and society. Then, Lord, you cause us to repent and make us right. And then, Lord, I pray for those who have betrayed us and hurt us. Lord, as we forgive them, Lord, I pray they get forgiveness as they repent and make it right. We pray, Lord, for those who have lacked faithfulness and integrity in this culture, those who have hurt us. For them to be forgiven as they repent, we pray for their salvation. In the name of Jesus, Lord, and we ask you, O oh God, to give us the strength to endure the cup of suffering that's before us, to endure, to be long-suffering, to not just be a fair-weather friend, Father, in the name of Jesus, right now, just to take a few moments and make sure your heart's right. If you've done Jesus wrong, repent of your sins. Be born again. Ask him to come into your heart. If you're already a Christian and you're backsliding, repent of those things before it's too late. Peter had another chance. Judas didn't. Don't be a Judas today. Be a Peter. A few moments right now. And then those who see the troubles of this world, you're facing the trials and tests, forgive them as Jesus did. Ask God to give you love for them in the midst of you standing for what is right. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, never let a man bring you so low as to hate him. Love your enemies, brothers and sisters. Pray with me now. Father, I forgive those who have sinned against me as you forgive my sins. Come on, a few moments right now. We will not fight from hypocrisy. We will not stand in our trials on injustice. We will do what is right. We will be righteous. We will be holy. We will be different in the name of Jesus. Ask God to use you to change the world you live in. When we preach during the gay pride events, we don't angrily call them sodomites. We don't angrily look at them as just as they're an, an, an other, as an other that, we, that deserves to go to hell and we have no love for them. No, we call them our brothers and sisters in humanity. We, we look at them made in the image of God and we have compassion for them. We weep for their souls when we see the inner city, when we see the corruption of politicians. We don't merely scoff at them. We pray for them. We pray for their repentance.
We love them and embrace them for the humanity and the image in which God gave them. A few moments right now. A few moments. If you want to stand for righteousness and in the midst of a world that's wicked, would you stand up with me now and give it up for Jesus and say, I'm here, Lord. I'm here standing on truth. Come on, give it up for Jesus and say, I'm here, Lord. I'm going to stand for truth. Band and altar workers, would you come, please?